Beloved, we're going to take a moment to pray to the Lord for the, His blessing on His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask that Your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, may be at work in us this day for Jesus' sake. Lord, that as Your children, that You will enable us to receive Your Word. If, Lord, we do not know the Lord, that Your Word may work in our hearts so that our reliance would be upon Him upon you, and that we would find in Christ our all in all. May what's received in the reading and the ministry of your word uh, be done in a way that brings glory to your name, and may we in turn seek to do the same. We pray that you'd hear us in Christ's name. Amen. My friends, we're going to be taking a look at First Samuel 17 this morning and consider that entire chapter. Now, it's a long chapter, so I'm not going to read every single verse. And thankfully for most of us, we're familiar with this event. It's one of those most familiar. Our boys and girls, even people in culture, can t talk about their David and Goliath moments, right? So there, even we see that in a worldly way that people understand or heard of this story in some fashion. So we're just going to uh, take pertinent, it's all pertinent, but we won't read it the entire chapter, uh, but we'll work our way through. First Samuel 17, as we continue our series on the exploits of David and how God was working with him, through him as his instrument, as the anointed of the Lord. First Samuel 17, starting with verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a, a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear weighed, head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. <clears throat> he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of, of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. 
who had eight sons. The days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And then we hear about Jesse uh, taking, telling David to take things to his brothers. And uh, then David uh, does so. And then we go to verse 24 after David had heard from the Philistine, and it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there, was, there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if it, he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him down and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And then we hear about him not able to wear the material that he was asked to wear. He took stones and put them in, in, the, in his pouch, his shepherd's pouch. And then in verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to him, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to this Philistine, You come to me with a sword, 
and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and swung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that they, the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. People of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. I'll stop there and we thank God for the reading of his holy word this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder sometimes, the boys and girls, if I were to ask you or somebody was to ask you how old you were, I bet, some of you know what fractions are, but I bet you might push yourself closer to the next number closer or next number higher than the age you actually are. In other words, if I ask you how old you were and you were four, you might say to me, I'm four, but I'm pretty close to five. Or I might ask you, how old are you? And you might say, well, I'm eight and a half or close to it. Boys and girls, once upon a time, <laughs> a number of years ago, I actually had somebody ask me, and they said, uh, Pastor, are, are you, aren't you, you're 40 and a half, aren't you? And I said, and this is, it was the truth, I said, no, I'm 40. I'm 40. Well, you see what happens, boys and girls, is that when you get older, you stop putting fractions on your age. You don't care so much about talking about being 40 and a half or 62 and a half or whatever because you feel like you're, you're old enough as it is. You're not going to tend to add your age to your age when you get older. That's the thing. But when you're young, when you're young, you're, you're looking forward to getting bigger. And that's okay. I have a grandson. Some of you heard me tell that story. I was holding one of my grandchildren, and he said to me, Grandpa, when I get, when I get older, I want to be big like you. He's three, right? And he wants to be big like Grandpa. That's, that's okay. 
That's fine. And yet, the story of David and Goliath teaches us that we don't have to be big to serve the Lord. Being big isn't what's most important. God's big grace is what is most important. That's what counts. But even when you are small, the Lord can use you to serve Him. Even if you think you're small when you're an adult and that nobody knows you and you kind of live what you might think in obscurity, that doesn't matter. Because when we serve the Lord, we're doing great things. Now it's okay for us to want to get older and bigger, but as far as God is concerned, right now is a great time to honor Him for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. David and Goliath is, my friends, a very familiar event. Did you know <laughs> that not only do we know it, but the world knows it? And yet it's, not a, it's one of those stories, and there's a lot of times that it can be like that. There can be familiar stories in the Bible where it's not so hard to lose sight of its Christian message. We pray that we might see its Christian message today as we focus on God's deliverance from this Goliath, from this defiant one of God and his people. The event is, isn't just a mere story about how underdogs can win. and We love those kinds of stories. I do. Many of you do, no doubt. No, but it speaks of the deliverance that God won through his instrument, David the Anointed One. Because as David himself says, the battle is the Lord, and David is just an instrument of the Lord here. We're going to focus on the need for the deliverance, its delay, and also on how that deliverance took place. So we, we look first of all at why was this deliverance needed? And we can answer that question in two ways. One focusing on God's people, and one focusing on God. We'll start with God's people. Our passage tells us where the battle takes place in various ways of describing it, Soko and Elah and all that. But basically what that area was, was, was the central foothills of Palestine. And, and that was known as the Shephelah. And Shephelah was a word that meant low lowlands, foothills. This area between the Philistines and the Israelites was a very strategic area uh, because whoever could control these foothills could control the values and the culture and the business and the economy of the other. And, and you really see that, that fight for influence here because here are the terms, right? If we win, you serve us. If, if you win, we serve you. This is a battle about influence. Who's going to prevail? God's people here fear and are in danger of losing their distinction, their identity, and their ability to exercise godly influence. 
But God wasn't going to let that happen. Because the influence that they were called to exercise was to be directed to the glory of His name. God was going to keep His people, despite them, not because of them, from sinking into oblivion and obscurity. They were to be serving Him, not the forces of evil. He was going to do this for their sake, but He was also going to do this for His sake. He's, his keeping them from oblivion and obscurity was also for the sake of His promises to bring a Savior whose work allows God's people to be distinct in the first place and would bring about the greatest influence that would be needed for the people of the world, a transformation of heart and life for God and by God. God does deliver a people set aside to live distinctively for Him so that they can be salt to the earth, light to the world that they're called to be. And when we mess with that calling to distinction, it's because we're messing with God's precepts. You know, today, people, as in all times, want to stand out. We talked a little bit about this before when we were talking about how men look at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. But, but people want to stand out. They, they have this desire to be distinct. They want to be unique in the crowd. They want to stand out. But a lot of times, it's with the desire to simply shoot the spotlight on themselves instead of on the glory of God. And we can do that in all kinds of places, but we can seek to draw attention to ourselves or even unwittingly desire to blend in with the world. And, and when the world seeks to do that, or when the church seeks to do that, you know, we're tempted to do that in this, this time in which we live. For the church to, to, to drink, the I, I say that more often, to drink the Kool-Aid of the world, to drink that poison, so that they'll like us. But when the church seeks to do that, there isn't any difference between the church and the world anymore. So who needs the church then? I don't need the church for something that I can do without her. If she's just going to be like the world anyway. Deliverance was needed then in part to keep Israel distinct. If you want the deliverance of the Lord, you must realize that you also must take the distinction that comes with it. The call to holiness, to godliness, to be like God, to be like Christ. The difference that comes with being a Christian. Because that's the full orb message that the church brings to the world. Not just evangelizing them and saying, and it is, you know, you need to be saved by Christ, but you need to be saved unto holiness. Unto a different life. 
I mean, what good does it do to evangelize people to the Christian way if the so-called Christians themselves aren't following the Christian way to begin with? You know, many people will claim to believe in God, but marriage breakdowns among church-going people is competing with non-Christians. Where's the distinction there? It's an alarming reality. People must know that joining the church, professing Christ, isn't just a matter of salvation. It is, but it's also a matter of distinction. It, it, it's hard by our nature to believe that we cannot save ourselves. But it can be equally hard, because of our nature, to see the calling to live a distinctively holy life. But if we don't see that, then the church loses its saltiness, its light, its identity, its influence. God will not let that happen now to those who belong to him, but we better not get complacent lest we take a bigger fall than Goliath took for his really anti-Christian haughtiness. But of course, it wasn't just Israel's honor at stake, but even more importantly, it was God's honor. David's portrayed as the only one that sees this. He goes and talks to all different people. They all say the same thing. But he's the only one that sees that God is defiled. You know, we read from verse... we, we uh, we didn't pick this up in verses 22 to 25, but you know, David left the things in charge of the keep of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion of Philistine, uh, uh, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks, spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they were, uh, they saw the men, fled from him, all the men. And they were much afraid. And the men said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him, and great riches will uh, give him his daughter, and will give him uh, his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. But all these people, they see only the defying of the nation. But David alone sees that impurity is in the midst. Goliath wasn't just a man to David. He was an uncircumcised that defiance was not only of Israel then, but the, he says of the armies of the living God. The living God. That's in contrast to the dead Dagon God that Goliath represented. We'll hear more about that in a moment. You can read back about in, in Galatians um, 1 Samuel 5, verse 4, about the deadness of Dagon. But this dot defiance then comes to Israel, not only, but to the armies of the living God, while, while Goliath is a representative of dead, dead Dagon, the devil, and of evil. Goliath represents impurity, blasphemy, the spiritual foe that wages war against the Lord and his anointed. Not just the people of God, 
this was a matter not only of the honor of Israel, it was a matter of the honor of God. Now people have, have made something of, his, of Goliath's appearance here as that which is representative of, of the serpent, the devil, the number of man because of, of the number sixes that show up here, of worldliness. Right? Because his spear had a number of six and his height was that of six cubits in a span. But whether you're looking at that or just the entirety of the narrative, God, Goliath is representative of the spiritual forces that are warring against the honor of God. And David's the only one who gets that. And so God's honor is David's motivation. He's, he's not concerned so much for the honor of Israel. He's not so concerned about the honors that he would receive if he would defeat this champion. His motivation, like that of Christ who was to come, was not man's honor, but God's honor. And he places himself in a position where he might honor God as his instrument. And in that way, he, he prefigures, prefigures Jesus Christ, who was obedient as the shepherd. Because David is shown to be that person here. He's the shepherd that comes, right? He's the shepherd that took care of the sheep. He's the shepherd who puts stones in his shepherd's bag. He prefigures Jesus Christ who is obedient as the shepherd who gives his life only to take it up again. Indeed, it's the honor of God which moves God to deliver his people by using the one whom he anointed. The kings of the earth may rise up against him, but he will not be defeated. His name is going to be honored in Israel. His name is going to be honored among the nations. There will be influence on the godly side, you can be sure. Then the world will know that there is a God in Israel and they'll honor him for it. They'll honor the, the living God and not the God of the dead. And that's so important for the world to see in our lives today as imitators of Christ, who's the great deliverer. Our motivation needs to be the honor of God. So the world might see there's a God in the church of Jesus Christ. There's a God in us. And that there's a God in our lives. Impurity has no place. That has to be removed from our life and from the life of the church. For the honor of God needs to be foremost for our lives. It needs to be that way as we educate our children. As we take that test and we're tempted to cheat for honors. Devoting ourselves to our spouses. Directing our children for their benefit, but also for the honor of God. The honor of God are making sure I get my fair share. Which comes first? Well, we know what the culture says. But we also know what God says. It's the honor of God. What I do doesn't hurt anybody, so why do I care? And why do you care? You care about the honor of God. God being honored in my life, that's the question. Am I bringing honor to God by watching this or listening to that? Why do I want to get good at what I'm doing? Well, I want the money, I want the house that I want to buy, I want the stuff, I want the the power that may come with it. 
Or am I doing that so God will be glorified through me? Is it glorified or defied? Which way do I want to go with God? So we see why the deliverance had to happen. With God's people, for God's honor. But why did it take so long? Why the delay in the deliverance? Goliath is going out there every day for 40 days. Why hadn't somebody come forward already? Obviously, nobody could match his physical and technological abilities. He was huge. And Israel had little iron to make shields and spears and swords. So, so how, how could anybody expect to win over somebody like this? The passage says, God's people were dismayed and terrified. Nevertheless, something was missing from this camp. And it was more than courage. It was perspective and proper motivation. And the only one who was anointed of the Lord with the Spirit of Christ. He was missing. He wasn't there. The camp had forgotten who they were. They weren't just some common army or nation. They were the people of God in the army of the Lord. And the only one who remembered that was David. They were the people of the promises. They were the people whose God was alive. And not dead like Dagon, who had fallen face first in Dagon's temple. In chapter 5, verse 4. Theirs was the God who lived with his people. They were the ones whose calling was to bring honor to him and to hate defilement of that great name. But dismay and terror ruled the day. All they could think about was the power of evil. Now where these words occur elsewhere, we read that they had become afraid and discouraged, and it resulted in a spiritual paralysis. Well, it certainly happened here. It happened because as was the case with David's brothers, they were followers of Saul. You know, that's how they point out, they emphasize that they were followers of Saul. They were following the one who had the Spirit of the Lord removed from him and could not be the needed shepherd of the sheep. Deliverance delayed. Nothing good happened because... You see what's really happening here? They were sheep without a shepherd until David came. They were sheep without a shepherd. And we can be afraid of many things, what people are going to say, or afraid of failing. Maybe we fear for our own salvation or to testify to the Lord's work in our life. That's, we don't want to tell anybody that. Who knows what they'll say? They'll think I'm a weirdo. The Lord would remind us of His promises and His presence and His power to save and deliver. And when we focus on that, 
we're not going to be paralytic. We're going to move forward as the Lord has called us to do. The Christian life on this earth, after all, is not a destination. It's a journey, right? We walk with the Lord in the light of His Word. And we're not called to merely stand, and certainly not to stand still, but to press forward. Not to sit down, but to run the race. Not to be content in our condition, but to grow in sanctification. Not so that people would say to us, well, that's just the way Joe is. That's just the way Mary is. We don't want people to say that of us. We don't want to be content in our condition. We want to grow in our sanctification so that people would say, well, Joe is really different. Mary's really different. The only way we'll do that is by remembering the promises and the presence and the power of the Lord. Because in Christ, you see, and that's what we got to be encouraged about, when we remember Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, we are not as sheep without a shepherd. Now, Jesus pitied the people when he came to them in the New Testament because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We don't, we're not that way when we're in Christ. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. More can be said about this delay that the people were petrified, and yet this battle is the Lord's. So why did he wait 40 days? Why not bring immediate deliverance? Why not bring David after the first day? God makes us wait sometimes, doesn't he? We find the number 40 finding its place in the Bible in different places. 40 years in the desert, 40 days of spying, 40 days in the desert for Elijah and for Jesus, 40 days before Jesus ascends. No more, no less. Why? Because these are learning times for God's people. They're times of trial. They're, they're times of understanding the need to rely on the Lord who has his own timetable. God didn't bring the fullness of deliverance to Adam when he promised the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. He doesn't bring Christ back on the clouds of glory, though we might call out, oh, Christ, come back quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God interludes, and he delays. But God's interludes and delays are not always according to our timetable, but they underscore his power in the end to say his good timing and our need to rely on him. And if we can see how God is underscoring his power to save in his delays, we're all the better for it. So how does God deliver? The last thing here a moment. Three things real quickly. Not by many, but by one. That's the first thing. Not by many, but by one. Not by the strong, not by the sword, not by the means of man. In the passage, nobody else shares David's perspective. Nobody. It's not popularity that saves. Christ was despised and rejected by men. He was the stone that was rejected, that became the capstone. He was rejected by his brothers. We learn here that only one delivers. 
And that's the anointed of the Lord. The popular perspective is not always the right perspective. People will take polls today and say, well, this is what people think, so that must be what it ought to be. Oh, that's not true. David is not motivated by popularity. He's not motivated by the honors of men. He stands for the right. He stands for the honor of God. He again is a picture of Christ's God-honoring way. Because deliverance from evil comes through the honoring of God. It's not by technology or the power of men. The battle is the Lord's. When we proclaim Christ to the nations, it's the Lord. And that's really what David's doing here, right? Then you will know. Then the people will know that there is a God in Israel. It's not our slick technology that wins people over. It isn't our slick words. It isn't our, our, our clever packaging. It's not our schemes. It's not we. We're tools in the hands of God. We're clay in the hands of the potter. Paul called himself a jar of clay. That's not much. Goliath says that David comes with sticks. David says it's not by war that deliverance comes. It's by the name of the Lord. It's by His grace. And he gets the glory. And that's still the way today. Not your power, not mine. But the Lord changes people and changes us. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. The head of, the Goli of Goliath is stone and cut. That's another way you see the deliverance. And he falls forward exactly like the god Dagon in chapter 5, verse 4. You hear that the stone goes in him and he falls flat on his face. Go back and read chapter 5, verse 4. Goliath's god Dagon falls flat on his face. As your gods, so shall you be. Right? Goliath is following the way of the dead. That's what our culture does. Abortions and homosexuality and the like, right? That's, that's, the, that's the culture of the dead. As Satan's head is crushed by the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, so is the head of Goliath destroyed. Ours is a greater victory than that rout of Israel that day. When we've known Christ's spirit... Christ has gone before us and overcome the devil in the world. We are not the losers if we're Christians, my friend. We are not. We are not the losers. We're the champions in Christ. Don't ever lose sight of that. We are more than conquerors. Don't envy the world. Don't fear them. We're the champions. In Christ. One last thing is that you see is that deliverance happens through the shepherd who defends his sheep. Even as he slew the bear and the lion, so also he slays Goliath. He goes to his shepherd's bag to gain the stone victory. The greater shepherd gives his life to the sheep only to take it up again. The shepherd who not only keeps his sheep from oblivion and obscurity, but provides for them to be of godly influence. And isn't that encouraging to know when you're tempted to think that you're just living your life in obscurity and nobody cares and it doesn't matter? 
It does when you know Christ. God's deliverance needs to happen to keep God's people distinct and for God's own honor. A distinction that we need to accept if God's deliverance means anything to us in Christ. And that distinction will keep us from being paralytic in our walk because we keep His promises in view and we wait for His time. And deliverance occurs not because of the many but because of the Christ, the Anointed One. Not through personal gain or the power of men or the, the, the slickness of people's thoughts, but by the grace of our Lord. It's a battle, it's the Lord's. And it still is today through Christ our Lord. With power and encouragement to face the foe today without fear. But with the boldness that Christ gives to those who are in him. I pray that we'll know that boldness of faith today as a sheep delivered by the chief shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus Christ our Lord, not to live in obscurity, but to live eternally and to be distinct and of godly influence in the world around us. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great anointed one who came and crushed the serpent's head so that we might be distinct and be of godly influence, saved by grace and to serve in grace before a world that wants to follow the God of death. We're thankful for life in Christ, for the victory we have, for our great champion who makes us champions. We're not losers. We're not living in obscurity when we've known that great deliverer. We live as those who are called in our homes, in our work, wherever we are, to be of godly influence in the world in which we live. What a blessing to be able to live that way for our Savior. We pray that you'd accept our thanks for Jesus' sake. Amen.